On May 9th, 1908, 17-year-old Nguyen Tat Tan watched in awe as angry Vietnamese peasants stormed the capital city of Hue, protesting their frustration over high taxes, corruption, and mistreatment at the hands of French imperialists. The anger was a long time coming. For over 20 years, the French colonials had treated the Vietnamese as little more than indentured servants, who existed only to serve them. And the Vietnamese were tired of it. As the protesters marched toward the office of the French regional minister, Tan realized that the uneducated peasants would need an interpreter to make their demands known. Fluent in French, he immediately volunteered. When the crowd arrived at its destination, it was met by baton-wielding police officers. Tan himself was struck several times, but the group refused to back down. Eventually, one representative was chosen to negotiate the terms for the group's dispersal, and Tan joined them as an interpreter. Unfortunately, the negotiations were fruitless. French soldiers were called in to quell the protest. They began firing on the protesters, killing several civilians. The following day, a French police official arrived at Tan's school demanding to see the, quote, tall, dark student. Though Tan stood only at 4 foot 11 inches, everyone knew the official was referring to him. For his participation in the protest, Tan was immediately expelled. This event would set the stage for Tan's journey from a gifted student of Confucianism and French language to a follower of Marxist-Leninist philosophy, one that would inspire him to become one of the most fearsome, effective, and mysterious dictators of the 20th century, Ho Chi Minh. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're exploring three of the 20th century's most famous Marxist-Leninist leaders, Vladimir Lenin, Fidel Castro, and Ho Chi Minh. This week, we'll explore the early life and political career of Ho Chi Minh, a man who toiled for years attempting to expose the evils of colonialism and how he bided his time before finding the perfect opportunity to free his Vietnamese countrymen from the grasp of the French. Next week, we'll examine his reign as leader of North Vietnam and how he successfully defended the country from two of the world's military superpowers. We'll also delve into his own unique brand of Marxist-Leninist doctrine and how he chose the bits and pieces that best suited his own ideology one of freedom and independence for his country at any cost. For the sake of clarity, even though Ho Chi Minh had several names and aliases throughout his lifetime, he will be referred to here as Ho Chi Minh. We'll head to French Indochina, coming up. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Vietnam in its current unified independent form has only existed as a country for 45 years. Before that, from approximately 1887 to 1954, it was under French control. Known as French Indochina, the territory consisted of current-day Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And for the thousand years preceding that, the region was mostly under Chinese rule. As a result, up until the First Indochina War in 1946, the Vietnamese populace had experienced life in a colonial state. They were accustomed to being subjects of another country or dynasty. But that didn't mean a revolutionary fervor didn't exist. In fact, when Nguyen Sinh Gang, later known as Ho Chi Minh, was born in 1890, a spirit of anti-colonialism was brewing among the educated middle class. By the late 19th century, approximately 90% of Vietnamese nationals were rural peasants. Those considered upper middle class or elite were prosperous landowners or those with careers in civil service in mid-level bureaucratic positions serving the French government. Like many European colonies, Vietnam was desperately poor and underdeveloped and the French wasted no time plundering its abundant natural resources, particularly rice and rubber. Thousands of Vietnamese citizens were forced to toil as laborers, earning little money and working under extremely dangerous conditions. But Ho Chi Minh's father, Nguyen Sin Sat, was not one of those people. Though he was born in an impoverished rural village, Sak harvested a love for learning. At the age of 15, he was taken under the wing of a Confucian scholar who provided him with a formal education. He would eventually become a scholar in his own right, attending the Imperial Academy and earning multiple advanced degrees in the Confucian educational system. This trajectory was an exceedingly rare accomplishment for any Vietnamese man of letters, let alone a man from a poor peasant family. Many Vietnamese citizens with advanced degrees took civil service jobs, but Sac had no interest in serving the French. Instead, Sac chose to open a small school and continue his own studies. Sac's decision meant that Ho Chi Minh and his older siblings were born into more fortunate circumstances than the vast majority. And even though they still lived in a poor rural village, their father cared deeply about his children's education. In particular, he wanted them to have a respect for classic Chinese literature and the tenets of Confucianism. For hundreds of years, Confucianism was the backbone of the education system throughout most of Asia. 
The philosophy covered everything from politics to personal ethics. But rather than learning to apply the teachings to their lives, most students simply learned them through rote memorization. But Sack encouraged a different style of learning. Instead of simply memorizing Confucian theory, he discussed it at length with his pupils and children until they understood how to apply it in their own lives. Like his father, Ho Chi Minh was a gifted and precocious student. He was highly attuned to his surroundings and seemed both in awe of and baffled by the French occupiers and the figurehead emperor they'd installed. Although the family lived a relatively happy and comfortable life, the entire dynamic changed when Ho was 10 years old. At the beginning of 1901, his mother died after complications from childbirth. Worse yet, the baby would only survive a year. This series of events hit Ho's father particularly hard, but he had to maintain a brave front for the sake of his surviving children, especially his youngest son. By this time, Ho's father knew that his inquisitive son seemed destined for something special. So, as tradition dictated, he bestowed upon him a new name, Nguyen Tat Tan, meaning he who will succeed. In Vietnamese culture, children are given a birth or milk name, which is then changed around age 11. Along with the name change came a brief change in his schooling. Not long after his mother died, Ho began studying under his father's friend, Vuong Tuk Kui. Kui installed in Ho a passion for the liberty, independence, and autonomy of Vietnam. During this time, Ho was also exposed to more educated revolutionaries, particularly an aspiring organizer named Fan Boy Chow. Chow was probably the first person Ho had ever met who had actually attempted to organize against the French imperialists. During his youth, Chow had led a small militia in combat against French troops before being quickly defeated. Still, Ho admired the new men in his orbit and absorbed all he could. And in 1907, 17-year-old Ho passed the entrance exam for the National Academy, a prestigious French-led high school for Vietnamese students. Ho thrived at the academy. There, he expanded his education to a more French-based system of language, arts, history, science, and most importantly, politics. Ho was something of a contrarian. He relished debating his teachers and classmates, but was nonetheless praised by one particular instructor as an intelligent and truly distinguished student. Though he was regularly teased for his rural accent, the bullies did so at their own peril. Ho wasn't afraid of a fight. On one occasion, he was reprimanded for striking a fellow student who had mocked his accent. For the rest of his life, Ho would never back down from a conflict, no matter how big or strong the enemy. At the academy, Ho was exposed to a world beyond the confines of semi-rural Vietnam. He wanted to travel the globe and see these other countries and cultures up close, particularly France and the United States, countries that had engaged in successful bourgeois revolutions of their own. Although he resented his French overlords, Ho was fascinated by the French Revolution and their art and culture. But perhaps more than anything, he was perplexed and angered by how a country founded on liberty, equality, and fraternity 
could subjugate an entire colony of people. Ho wasn't the only one asking these questions. In early 1908, Vietnamese peasants protested against French imperialism, and in May, Ho participated as translator. As it happened, the uprising intensified in June when followers of Ho's boyhood hero, Fan Boy Chow, plotted to stage a coup by poisoning French officials. The uprising caused the French to briefly declare martial law and implement even more oppressive rules. But Ho had witnessed firsthand how a man he knew had stood up against the French, and it inspired him to do the same. Unfortunately, Ho's rabble-rousing put him on the radar of French authorities. To avoid detection, Ho decided to skip town and cool his heels in the countryside. For the next several months, he fell off the radar. Then, at some point in 1909, he emerged from hiding and began making his way towards Cochin, China, the southern region of Vietnam. For the next year or so, he bounced around from town to town, taking odd jobs to make ends meet. In 1910, Ho found work as a schoolteacher in the port city of Phan Thiet, where by all accounts, he was beloved and highly respected. The fairly progressive school allowed Ho to teach his students the writings of Enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire and Rousseau. But soon his wanderlust got the better of him, and on June 5, 1911, he boarded a French steamship and sailed to Marseille. It would be his first journey to a Western country, and one that would change his life forever. Coming up, Ho Chi Minh travels the world, embraces the teachings of Vladimir Lenin, and devotes his life to Vietnamese independence. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. After a tumultuous youth in Vietnam, 21-year-old Ho Chi Minh was a budding revolutionary and something of a fugitive. Feeling he'd be safer outside his native country, he hopped on a steamship and headed to France, the land of his colonial oppressors. Asked years later why he decided to leave Vietnam, Ho said, The people of Vietnam, including my own father, often wondered who would help them to remove the yoke of French control. I saw that I must go abroad and see for myself. After I found out how they lived, I would return to my countrymen. There is very little information concerning this period in Ho's life. Though his initial destination was Marseille, historian William J. Diker posits that Ho spent most of the next two years at sea, working on various ships and visiting ports around the world. Then, he briefly settled in New York in 1912. The Big Apple was perhaps the farthest thing on the planet from his home village. And while Ho was certainly impressed by the towering skyscrapers and bustling streets, 
What really caught his eye was the fact that immigrants seemed to have equal rights. Around 1913, Ho left the United States for London. There, he studied English and trained in a hotel restaurant under a renowned chef. It's unclear how long he stayed in the British capital, but it's assumed he returned to France in late 1917, at the height of World War I. As the war raged, 27-year-old Ho settled in Paris, where around 100,000 Vietnamese citizens had been conscripted into the French army. Although Ho wasn't among them, he would get to know many conscripts quite well. And it was here in Paris, among like-minded intellectuals and revolutionaries, that he began his pursuit of Vietnamese independence in earnest. He began attending meetings of the French Socialist Party, or FSP. He met Vietnamese laborers who were being treated with the same lack of respect in Paris as they were back home. There were also a number of wealthy Vietnamese expats who were caught up in the spirit of revolutionary fervor. Most interestingly, though, during these FSP meetings, Ho met a number of Parisians sympathetic to the cause of Vietnamese independence, the polar opposite of virtually every French person in Vietnam. Perhaps, Ho thought, the spirit of the French Revolution really did live on. In an effort to unite the Vietnamese laborers and intellectuals living in Paris, Ho founded the Association of Annamite Patriots, or AAP, a nationalist organization dedicated to Vietnamese independence. Though he had not yet embraced Bolshevism by this point, Ho's revolutionary activity followed Lenin's trajectory. He began writing articles for underground newspapers, imploring his readers to fight against colonial powers across the world and calling attention to the plight of the Vietnamese. Ho was a competent, albeit long-winded writer, and his real strength was his ability to interact with the uneducated Vietnamese laborers. Owing, perhaps, to his experience as a teacher, Ho was able to communicate the importance of Vietnamese autonomy and how it would affect their own lives and well-being. But while Ho was educating the Vietnamese in Paris, he soon found himself appealing for independence to the most powerful leaders in the world. After the Allied victory of World War I, global leaders gathered in Paris in June 1919 to sign the Treaty of Versailles. American President Woodrow Wilson publicly championed the idea of self-determination and democracy for colonies around the world. Ho was hopeful that Wilson might support the Vietnamese in their fight for freedom. Even more encouraging was that Albert Sarrault, the Governor General of French Indochina, had recently made a speech promising Indochinese citizens an expansion of civil rights. So, with the help of a colleague, Ho decided to compose a manifesto, laying out the ideology and objectives of the Annamite Patriots. It was published under a pseudonym that roughly translates to Nguyen the Patriot. In the pamphlet, he demanded all the freedoms he had seen others enjoy throughout the Western world. He wanted freedom of religion, free press, equal rights, and the end of forced labor. Ho made several copies of the manifesto and actually hand-delivered them to members of the French National Assembly, the President of France, and representatives of the U.S. delegation. More copies were distributed around Paris and published in a left-wing newspaper. Unfortunately, Ho was almost completely ignored. 
U.S. delegates acknowledged receiving the letter, but didn't follow up any further. The president of France, meanwhile, had French authorities track down the author of the pamphlet. Eventually, they would tie it to Ho and label him a dangerous agitator. Ho was crestfallen. He felt betrayed by the lies and grandstanding of Western powers. Perhaps naively, he had believed that government officials would be as sympathetic as the Parisians he'd met in the FSP. Ho came to the conclusion that he could no longer trust any Western leaders. He believed they were all hypocrites, corrupted by self-interest and capitalism. But had things gone differently, had Woodrow Wilson or the French taken Ho seriously, it may have averted future conflicts that were catastrophic for all three countries. After this stinging rebuke from the West, Ho looked to another nation that had just unshackled the chains of empire, Russia. By now, Ho was a dedicated socialist, and he admired Vladimir Lenin. However, he knew little about Bolshevism until 1920. That summer, Lenin presented his Theses on the National and Colonial Questions at the Second Comintern Congress. Though Ho wasn't in attendance himself, he read a later published copy. Ho was moved by the work, which implored colonial subjects to rise up against their oppressors. Ho became inspired to study all of Lenin's published writings. Around the same time, he also read Karl Marx and kept a copy of Das Kapital under his pillow. Unlike Woodrow Wilson, who only paid lip service to Vietnamese independence, Lenin seemed willing to back up his words, even if it meant using violence. As a result, Ho fully embraced Bolshevism. He also decided it was time to kick his own activism into overdrive. In 1920, while in Tours, 30-year-old Ho Chi Minh co-founded the French Communist Party. He continued to publish articles in French newspapers demanding Vietnamese independence, only now they were interspersed with tenets of Bolshevism, particularly about his disdain for capitalism. In many ways, Ho was patterning himself on Lenin, who had spent a great deal of time outside Russia attempting to build a following through his revolutionary writing. But... Unlike Lenin, Ho was not a particularly gifted writer. Many criticized his work as tedious and unremarkable. However, Ho intended his work to be read by the proletariat, so he may have kept it intentionally simple. Unsophisticated or not, his writing was effective enough to warrant even more attention from French authorities, and soon Ho was under constant surveillance. Still, over the next few years, he continued drafting articles and engaging with communists and socialists around the world. But Ho soon grew frustrated that his activism wasn't producing tangible results back home. So he formed yet another political organization, the Intercolonial Union, which was dedicated to the interests of all colonial expatriates living in France, including Africans and Arabs. His writing soon shifted once again to direct appeals for independence and revolution among the colonial subjects. And to help with that goal, he founded a radical newspaper called Le Paria, or The Pariah. And before long, Russian party leaders started following Ho's activities and believed that he could be useful in the Kremlin. So in 1923, 
33-year-old Ho was invited to Moscow to join the Comintern. Ho accepted the invitation. However, there were two French agents constantly on his tail, and if they discovered his plans, he knew he could be arrested for conspiracy to overthrow the French government in Indochina. So, he secretly began plotting his escape from France. On June 13th, Ho innocuously entered a movie theater. At some point during the film, he made a clandestine exit through a side door. He then went to the train station where he was handed his luggage by an accomplice. He hopped aboard a train to Berlin, posing as a cigar-chomping merchant. A few weeks later, he arrived in Petrograd and then set foot in Moscow in late July. In 1923, the Soviet Union was in a state of upheaval. The country had been decimated by civil war and famine, and Vladimir Lenin was on the verge of death. Meanwhile, within the government, Joseph Stalin was quickly consolidating power over his rival Leon Trotsky. Ho was less concerned with Soviet party leadership than with his agenda of Vietnamese independence, and he got to work almost immediately. In October 1923, Ho addressed members of the International Peasant Conference in Moscow, railing against imperialism. Despite the change of scenery, Ho picked up more or less where he'd left off in Paris, penning articles, chairing meetings, and even attending courses at the hyperbolically named Communist University of the Toilers of the East. Soon, Ho became the de facto representative of all those oppressed under the yoke of colonialism. Following Ho's urging, party leaders in Moscow assigned him a clear directive, return to Asia and begin recruiting anyone sympathetic to the cause. On November 11, 1924, 34-year-old Ho Chi Minh arrived in Canton, China. It had been 13 years since he'd set foot in Asia. Ho spent over two years in Canton, making important connections with revolutionaries. He became close to those in the Chinese Communist Party and even formed an organization of his own called the Revolutionary Youth League. Similar to the AAP in France, this group was composed of Vietnamese exiles living in China dedicated to Vietnamese independence. Ho was clearly back in his usual routine of writing articles and recruiting followers to the Vietnamese cause. But however many followers he recruited, Ho knew he would have to wait for the perfect set of circumstances to strike against French imperialism. That wait would last another 20 years. For those two decades, Ho bounced from China to Siam to the Soviet Union. During this period, he founded the Vietnamese Communist Party, which would be renamed the Indochinese Communist Party, made appearances at various Comintern conferences, and even had a stint in a Chinese jail because of his political agitation. But eventually, the moment Ho had been waiting for finally arrived with the advent of a global conflict that would change history forever. World War II. Coming up, Ho Chi Minh finally gets to lead his own revolution. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
the luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. For decades, Ho Chi Minh had followed in Lenin's footsteps, living in exile, organizing, and penning inflammatory articles calling for Vietnamese independence. But like Lenin, Ho wanted to lead the revolution himself. And with the outbreak of World War II, he finally got his chance. The dominoes began to fall two years before the war's outbreak. In 1937, a skirmish erupted between Japanese and Chinese troops not far from Beijing, which initiated the Second Sino-Japanese War. The Japanese moved in to invade China and made swift, brutal progress throughout the country, claiming the lives of over 10 million Chinese citizens. After routing the Chinese, Japanese troops made their way into Indochina and in 1940, easily overthrew the French, whose own country was currently occupied by the German army. Though French colonial authorities remained, Vietnam was now under Japanese control. And in the bloody chaos, Ho saw an opportunity. In 1941, Ho returned to Vietnam and began assembling a guerrilla force to overthrow the Japanese and French. It was called the League for the Independence of Vietnam, more commonly known as the Viet Minh. Over the next three years, the Viet Minh fought the Japanese in sporadic battles throughout the region. Unfortunately for Ho, he was imprisoned again by the Chinese in 1942. He spent over a year in prison, but made the most of it by penning poems that would later be published as a collection. But once released, Ho got back to business. Then, after years of fighting, the unthinkable happened. Ho got some help from the Americans. In 1944, Ho linked up with the OSS, the precursor to the CIA. The opportunity came in the form of American reconnaissance pilot, Lieutenant Rudolf Shaw, whose plane experienced engine trouble and crashed near a unit of Ho's men. Ho sent a group of Viet Minh soldiers to rescue Shaw, and over the next month, they walked him all the way back to an OSS outpost on the Chinese border. Ho sought to enlist U.S. assistance, suggesting that they could work together to fight the Japanese. But on one condition, the U.S. had to recognize Ho and the Viet Minh as the official leadership of Vietnam once the war ended. The OSS didn't commit to Ho's condition, but they did take him up on fighting the Japanese. In fact, OSS agents even parachuted into the jungle to train the Viet Minh. But this alliance was cut short before it yielded results. In August 1945, the U.S. detonated its first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Almost immediately, the Japanese surrendered and during peace negotiations, agreed to retreat from Indochina. With a power vacuum at his fingertips, Ho encouraged the Viet Minh to seize power before the French could take back the country. This meant recruiting as many people as possible and urging them to embrace Ho as the nation's new leader. 
In many ways, this was when Ho launched his cult of personality. Already adept at relating to people of all stripes, he traveled around the country rubbing elbows with everyone he met and burnishing the image of Uncle Ho, a non-threatening, lovable old man who preached the value of social reform and equality. Of course, this was almost entirely an act. Ho was a cunning, battle-hardened tactician who sought independence at all costs. He could taste that the end of imperialism was near, and his own personal power was just beginning. By the end of 1945, Ho had used the Viet Minh to either intimidate or disappear anyone who stood in his way, even those who were nominal allies. In doing so, he was able to consolidate power among the fledgling Vietnamese rebel groups, capture major cities, and Ho emerged as the closest thing to a leader the country had. With his leadership intact, Ho announced Vietnam's official independence from France. However, the Allies were once again unwilling to step up on behalf of the Vietnamese. Afraid of losing a trusted ally, they sided with the French, who wanted their colony back. Soon, French troops and colonists attempted to slink back into Vietnam as though nothing had happened. Between 1946 and 1949, Ho's Viet Minh made slow but steady progress against them in what was essentially a war of attrition. Then, in 1950, the Viet Minh got a little help from the Chinese, who decided to help their comrades with troops and weapons. The Americans came to the aid of the French in the same fashion. But for the United States, it wasn't simply about coming to help an ally. It was about something much more nefarious, stopping the spread of communism. Between the Soviets' influence in the Eastern Bloc and Mao Zedong taking control of China, the U.S. took a hard stance against communism. In the early 1950s, American troops engaged in a full-scale war against communist forces in Korea, which ushered in a new era of the Cold War, one in which the U.S. would clash with freedom fighters battling for their country's independence, including in Vietnam. As the First Indochina War raged, the U.S. supplied the French with economic and military aid. Unfortunately for them, throughout the early 1950s, the French were steadily losing ground to the Vietnamese. In late 1953, the French General Henri Navarre decided to throw a Hail Mary. He sent paratroopers to occupy an outpost called Dia Bien Phu. The goal was to establish a base in the northern part of the country and to cut off Viet Minh's connections to central and northern Laos. At first, the plan actually worked. The French outpost provided a secure, elevated location from which they could repel attacks. As a result, the Viet Minh, who tried to take the outpost by sending wave after wave of men, suffered heavy casualties. The Viet Minh general even involved his long-haired army of female troops. These women helped the Viet Minh by ferrying weapon parts into the mountains and delivering them to the troops below the Diem Bien Phu outpost. This allowed the Viet Minh to secure strategic areas and dig trenches that were difficult for the French to penetrate. The French still expected the Viet Minh to attempt a charge and overwhelm them. They had no idea that the Viet Minh had them surrounded not only with troops, 
but with stockpiles of artillery and ammunition. On May 6, 1954, Viet Minh troops once again rushed in a wave attack toward the French outpost. Only this time, they had cover from all sides. The French never stood a chance. By the next day, the Viet Minh army planted their flag at Dia Bien Phu. The country was theirs. While the Battle of Dia Bien Phu was being fought, representatives from the United States, China, North and South Korea, and the Soviet Union, among others, gathered in Geneva to finalize any outstanding issues from the Korean War. And with the Viet Minh declaring victory in the midst of the negotiations, they decided to address the future of Vietnam as well. Although Ho Chi Minh was firmly against any sort of compromise with the Allied forces, Chinese delegates convinced him to concede. After all, they knew that if Ho didn't play ball, the U.S. would simply walk away from the negotiating table and finish the job that the French couldn't. In an effort to save face, the U.S. convinced Ho to allow Vietnam to be split in half, much like Korea. Ho and the Viet Minh would be in charge of the North, and the U.S. would install No Dinh Diem, a Catholic anti-communist politician, to lead the South. Nationwide elections would then be held in two years to determine who would lead the entire country. Everyone knew that this plan was untenable and completely ludicrous. Civil war was all but inevitable. But for the first time, it did result in Vietnamese independence. Of course, the celebration was short-lived. Soon, Ho Chi Minh and No Dinh Diem were on a collision course for control of the country, one that would lead to the next ground battle in the Cold War and become the deadliest conflict in Vietnamese history. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll return with part two in our saga of Ho Chi Minh and explore his role in the Vietnam War. Among the many sources we used, we found Ho Chi Minh, A Life by William J. Diker extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and Joe Guerra, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>